I genuinely don't know how to follow that. Yeah, yeah, you can, you can bring that up. Oh, man, that was great. Hey, uh, are you guys enjoying these dramas? Can you, can you give it up for these guys? One of my favorite things about Hume is like, yeah, 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 give it up. Give it up for these guys. One of my favorite things about this place is, um, right, like none of these guys are, are like professional actors. Like they, they love Jesus a whole lot and want to give their life to like a, a winter camp to come up here and put on camp. But then they like, they have to learn all of these lines and these dances and this song and they build this set all to communicate the truth of God's word, right? Like, and it's awesome and it's funny and it's fun and you start like picking up on the theme of the stories and you go ah I see like, like like this was a dandelion like do you get that like when they popped it and then he went don't they get that spread weeds and it's like oh nice Hume like well done it's good so hey if you have your Bibles with you um, let me see them first and foremost up in the uh, your let me see them okay uh, open up to uh, the book of Jonah we're gonna get there in a minute but this friends don't miss this. Okay, if you're anything like me, you've been around this book before, or you've heard about this book, or you've been at church, or maybe somebody's told you about this book, and it's really easy to start looking at this thing and go like, yeah, for sure, it's the Bible. But don't miss, friends, I said this night one, that this is the greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told in its entirety. Genesis through Revelation, 66 books written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years. That's a long time. That's like 500 AD to current present day. Like that's a long time to write one single story on three different continents and three languages. And it all comes together to tell one incredible story. And we get to pick up on this. And I love even that last worship song that Connor and the band led us through. Right? Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. There's salvation in your name. You're my living hope. You know what I love about worship music? I'm, I'm not musically gifted at all. Not even a little bit. I picked up a guitar for like three weeks my senior year of high school and I just, I got blisters almost immediately and gave up. It was just like, music is not for me. I'm not, I can't sing incredibly well. And yet there's something powerful about worship music in particular. You want to know why? If I asked you to, to give me the ABCs, very rarely have I asked anybody to recite the ABCs and have they not sang to me A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M. Wait, why? Because we learned it that way. Remember, remember when you heard that, like, recently when you heard a song that you haven't heard in forever, and you knew every word to it, and you went, no way, I love this song. Or it was like, oh, I hate this song, but in the back of your head, you still know every single word to it. My daughter, Piper, most of her toys are, are some sort of song-related. She has, she has this one book that has this star in the bottom corner of it. And when you press that star, it sings songs to you. And then you open it up and there's, there's like a cow and a moon and all this stuff. And I, I love to play DJ with that thing, right? You can like button mash it and it's like, moon, 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 moon. And I'm like, okay, like I can get down with this toy. Right? But if you trip over that thing in the middle of the night, like you're getting up to go to the bathroom and you step on it and it's like learning friends together and I'm like, demons like in the house 
in the middle of the night. But everybody, every toy creator knows there's power in music. And I'm confident of one thing, friends. It's that most of us, we don't need to be taught new things all of the, all the time. We need, to, we need to remember. We need to be reminded of truth. And I love that we can sing a song that says, Hallelujah, you have set me free. I remember landmine, 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 cone, cone, cone. God's heart is for your freedom, for your actual genuine freedom. Not the freedom that we define, going, I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. What if God's heart was for you? God's heart is always for his purpose, and his purpose is always for salvation. The problem is, though, that my heart is not aligned with his heart. The problem is what we talked about last night, that there's sin present in my life. There's these thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes that fundamentally go against God's design for life. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is found in Luke chapter 15. And you don't have to turn there. I'm, I'm just going to recap it really quickly for you. It's, it's a story that maybe you've heard before in church, and it's a story called the prodigal son. But really, it's a story of two sons. And, and, and Jesus is telling this story to demonstrate what he's like, what his father is like, what his character is like. And he says, there's, it, there, once upon a time, there was a dad and two sons. And the youngest son, he comes up to his dad and he says, dad, give me my portion of the inheritance. And, and the reason you and I, we don't hear that and gasp is because most of us in here probably didn't grow up in a Jewish household. And if, but if you did grow up in a Jewish household and you were sitting here and you heard a story about a Jewish boy going up to his father saying, give me, you would all go, oh. he said, what? It would be this like big gasp. We would all go, no way. He did not say that. You want to know why? Because when a little Jewish boy or when a grown Jewish boy went up to his father and said, give me my portion of my inheritance, he's essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't know about you, but with me and my dad, like, that would not have gone over well. That wouldn't have been an awesome moment if I just walked up to my dad and in all sincerity went like, I wish you were dead so that I could just have your stuff. Yikes. And maybe you've heard that story before, but th there's this shocking moment where the, the, the youngest son, he comes up to his dad and goes, Dad, it would be better if you were dead because then I would just have your stuff and then I could just, I could go and do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. And you see the father, brokenhearted, give his youngest son what he's asking for. And we read in Luke chapter 15 that the younger son goes off with his dad's wealth and he squanders it in wild living. He does what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. He goes to the Las Vegas of the time. And he says, I want what feels good right here, right now. I want to experience what life has to offer. But there's two sons. I mean, the older son's back home. The older son's back home working his dad's farm. The older son's back home doing what his dad has asked him to do. And you see the younger son when he runs out of money and he kind of comes to the end of himself. You remember the, remember the Tom Brady story I told you guys about the interview where he goes, God, there's got to be more than this. See, see this is, it's kind of the moment that the younger son has. He runs out of money. He's had his fun. He's found out that the world around him is not totally fulfilling and satisfying. He's chase after it. Maybe you've even been here before. 
Maybe you've realized that that sport that you were playing or that dating relationship that you thought was going to be the answer or that boy or that girl or that grade or winning that tournament, you got where you wanted to be and then you kind of went, yeah, it's good. But, I, but I, there's got to be more than this. And the younger son, he, it says that he came, came to his senses. He says, what am I doing out here? Because even my, my father's hired workers, my hired laborers, like they're treated better than what I'm going through right now. I'm, I'm going to go back home. And he practices that speech. You ever known that you're going to get in trouble before and you start practicing your like, I'm sorry speech with your parents? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> it's like your elevator pitch. And you come up to your parents and you got it just right. This is the younger son. And he comes home. And my favorite part of this story in Luke chapter 15 my favorite part of the story is that it says that the father sees his son from a long way off. And you want to know why that's my favorite part? It's because if he sees him from a long way off, it means that the father was waiting day in and day out. Why? Because our God is a God that pursues We see it in Genesis 3. We saw it in Jonah chapter 1. And we see it in Luke 15. That the father figure in this story demonstrating who God is and what he's like. He's sitting on his front porch waiting. Because he is love. And he is compassionate and gracious. He's steadfast. Remember his name in Exodus 34? See, the father looked at his son as his son disrespectfully said, I wish you were dead. His father knows what he's done. His father knows that he went off into a foreign land. His father knows everything about him and still waited on the front porch for his boy to come home. And it says that he ran to him from a long way off. And here's the thing about old Jewish men. They don't run, especially wealthy old Jewish men. But he hiked up like his dress that he would have worn, and he runs to his boy. Why? Because he loves him. One of my favorite quotes is by a guy named Tim Keller. And Tim Keller says this. He says, to be loved but not known is superficial. Right? Does that make sense? Like, we can all kind of agree with that. If you were doing your thing in the grocery store and somebody walked up to you and went, like, I love you, you'd be, oh, Okay, <laughs> like, thank you. But it doesn't mean a whole lot if somebody doesn't know you. If they don't know you inside and out, it's why Justin Bieber can stand on stage and girls can go, I love you. And he doesn't go, wait, seriously? Oh my gosh, that's so meaningful to me. No, they don't know anything about him. They just, are, they just love an idea. They love his music. They, love, they don't know him. And so Tim Keller says, to be loved but not known is superficial. But to be known... And not loved is our greatest fear. It's why we're afraid of vulnerability. Because if we let people in, if people actually knew who we were, if they actually knew what I did this week, if they knew what I have looked at this week, if they could look at my internet history, if, if they knew what I did, what the, the boundaries that I crossed with the opposite sex, or what, what, if they knew how I talked to my parents, or if they knew what my home life looked like, or if they, if they actually knew me, maybe they wouldn't love me. Maybe I'd be rejected. It's our greatest fear as humans. That's why we wear masks. Not like COVID masks. The kind of masks that go, this is, what, this is my projected self. This is who I want you to think that I am. 
Like maybe it's a social media presence. Maybe it's a smile on my face when I'm broken inside. To be loved but not known is superficial. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and fully loved is a lot like being loved by God. And we see this in Luke 15, where the youngest son goes out and squanders his father's wealth. And knowing everything about that, he still waits on his front porch, sees him coming from a long way off, and runs to him. Why? Because he loves him. But remember, there's two sons in this story. There's an older son. And the second he sees his little brother come home and his dad run to him and he puts a ring on his finger and he kills the fattened calf and he goes, no way, this son who was gone is home and he celebrates the oldest son. He hears the music coming and he's still out in the field working and he hears it from a distance. You ever heard a party that's like a few houses down from your house and it's like boom, boom. You can like hear the bass as you're laying in bed. This is kind of, I, I imagine this moment being like that where the, the older son is still out in the field working. Why? Because he's, he's a good son. He works hard. And he hears the music back at his house and he's, what's going on? And he comes back and he sees that his little brother's home and he looks at his dad and his dad comes outside to meet him. It's a beautiful moment in this story. The dad leaves the party to go find his other son. Why? Because our God is a God that pursues And he talks to his oldest son, and the oldest son goes, this son of yours, (laughs) he doesn't say my brother, he doesn't say my little brother, he goes, this son of yours, he went to a foreign land, he squandered everything, he squandered your wealth, how could you possibly welcome him back home? And you know what it sounds a lot like? It sounds like Jonah. You know, Jonah, he doesn't want to go to the Ninevites, and honestly, he has good reason. The Ninevites have persecuted Jonah's people for a long time. And so when God asks him to take the good news, Jonah's first instinct is they don't deserve it. They they have done wrong. And it's the same attitude the older brother has. He goes, he doesn't deserve your love. He's not worthy of it. Do you know what he did? And the father goes, "Mm mm-hmm. I do. He goes, son, everything I have is yours. Why? Because I'm a good father and I'm a a father that pursues and I pursue him just like I pursue you. And the story ends with this moment of conviction where you and I, right, maybe you kind of feel like the, the younger son a little bit where you go, there's a lot of brokenness in my life and it's pretty obvious. Or maybe you align a little bit with the older son where maybe you've been a church kid for a long time. And maybe you even look at the kids at your high school that do a lot of bad things and you go, well, they're never going to come to church. Those kids would never darken the doors of my church. And maybe you can kind of relate to this Jonah story. Anybody love roller coasters? No? Anybody hate roller coasters? Okay, anybody like, whatever about roller coasters? Okay. Um, I'm like, I'm a big fan. I love them. I'm like a, like a big roller coaster guy. And whenever we would come back to the U.S., I would, we would always go to Six Flags in Santa Clarita. And I, I was all about roller coasters. But the problem was, I was a pipsqueak most of my life. I finished puberty when I was like 23 years old, okay? And so my, going into high school, my freshman year of high school, no joke, I was five foot two and about 100 pounds. 
And I just was, I had the high, you know, high-pitched voice, and I, puberty hadn't even, like, come close to me yet, freshman in high school, okay? And, yep, I see you, okay? And, like, we were, it just was, it was one of those, hey, he came to me, okay? That wasn't me calling him out, all right? So I was, I was just this teensy, tiny guy, and so whenever we'd come back to the U.S. and we'd go to these roller coasters, a lot of the big roller coasters, the ones that were worth riding, they always had the, you must be this tall to ride signs, and I would always, like, stuff my socks, you know, like, in my shoes, like, extra pair. I'm, like, wearing platform shoes, going to the roller coasters, going, like, am I, am I tall enough now? And I remember it, it was way later in my life that I was tall enough to actually ride the rides, like, X2 and Goliath, like, the ones that were actually worth riding. And, and, and it's, it's kind of this funny moment. In fact, I actually need a little bit of help with this. Corey, Annalisa, can you guys come up here for me? Okay, because y'all know the box bit where Corey brings up the box and he puts it here and Annalisa steps on it. I, I was watching this unfold and I went like, actually, this, this is really helpful for me. It's helpful for me that the two camp directors in this camp, that God built them very differently, right? Can you give it up for these guys? These guys are the best. Hi, Anna. Hi, Corey. Okay, Corey, you're here. Stand over here, Anna. You're what, like seven... To, what are you, 6'5"? 7'13". 7'13". 7'13". Okay. Um, but you're like 6'5", right? Okay. Like, if there was going to be, if a grizzly bear came in here and wanted to call out one person to fight, it would be Corey, right? Like, <laughs> like you were just, this is a beast of a man right here. You have never had a problem with, you must be this tall to ride ever, ever, ever in your life. You've had a beard since you were like seven, right? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You and I were opposites in junior high. Uh, sweet, Anna. Um, Annalisa is one of my wife's absolute best friends, so we are, we are dear friends. Anna, you're five foot nothing, right? Okay. Oh, okay. It's, that's, something, that's something short people say, right? I am five foot and one sixteenth of an inch. It's great. That's a beautiful thing. Okay. Um, this is, it's kind of like this, right? If, if you were going to a roller coaster and a roller coaster said, you must be six feet to ride, right? Which is about, yeah, something like this, right? And, it, and you walked up and it said, you must be six feet tall to ride. Corey looks at six feet and he goes, ha, I laugh in the face of six feet, right? Like that's, that's no problem for me. I look down on it. And sweet Anna would look up at six feet and go, oh. That is, that's a, long, that's a long ways away, right? You look at six feet and you go, that's, we can compare very easily. At six foot five and at five foot nothing, there's a foot and a half difference there where you go, this is, this is big. And if six feet is the standard, Corey looks at that and goes, I passed that with flying colors. And Anna looks at it and goes, that's never going to happen. Okay, but when it comes to this story, and when we look at the prodigal son, right, this is kind of like younger brother, older brother, backyard gnomes, front yard gnomes. We start to look at this standard that God has, and it seems that when they start comparing themselves to each other, older brother, younger brother, Jonah, Ninevites, it's kind of this foot and a half difference here. Where Jonah looks at the Ninevites and goes, how dare they, like how, how dare you God even tell them the good news? The older brother goes, God, father, how could you possibly kill a fattened calf and give him the ring? Do you know what he's done? And they're comparing six foot five to five foot nothing and looking down at, at one another. Or looking up at that going, I, I could never meet that standard. But friends, when it comes to the truth of scripture, you know the Empire State Building? 
The Empire State Building is 1,454 feet tall at its highest point. What if the you must be this tall to ride, we took it and we just put it on the top of the Empire State Building, 1,454 feet in the air. At that point, how ludicrous would it be if Corey walked up to the Empire State Building, looked up 1,454 feet, and then looked at Anna and went, well, I'm a foot and a half closer. We would all go, congratulations. <laughs> like both of them would walk up to 1,454 feet and go, oh, I'm not close. Corey at six foot five doesn't go and go, am I, am I, am I there? Right? We would all look at him and go, no. No, you're not. And at five feet, Anna doesn't look at six foot five and go, oh man, well, it's a foot and a half closer. No, you know what the only proper response is? No matter how tall you are in that scenario, walking up to the Empire State Building, the only proper response in that moment is, I can't. And I'm not close. Hey, give it up for these guys. Jonah, chapter 3. We pick up in the story. You know the moment where y'all went, aww, with the backyard gnomes? Hey, the backyard gnomes, they have this aha moment in the story. The Ninevites have this aha moment in the story. If Corey and Anna both walk up to the Empire State Building and have an aha moment where they go, oh, yeah, I'm not close. This is what we see in Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Okay, again, we talked about this this morning. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. Hey, so when Jonah comes to the city of Nineveh, he's not coming to them with some advice. He's not coming to them with a new religion. He's not coming to them with a philosophical ideology about how to clean up their lives because it's going to go better for them or they're supposed to be these moral people in order to please this God. No, he's coming to them with good news. You know what the word gospel means? It means good news. And so he comes to them a second time because God asks him to. And after Jonah is vomited out of the belly of a giant fish, which, friends, can we just pause for a second and realize how bananas that is? The fact that God used Jonah in the belly of a whale and then spit him out to deliver good news? We've been around the church for way too long if we just go, hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's nuts. The fact that a dude got swallowed by a big fish, and then that fish went, bleh. And then that dude walked out and went, Ugh. Anyways, what's up, Nineveh? Got some good news for you. This sh we should all go, huh? But the problem is we've grown up around this story so many times. We go, mm-hmm, Jonah and the whale, for sure. Flanagraph. VeggieTales, seen it, for sure. Great story. Like, this is nuts. And, and Jonah comes to the people of Nineveh, and he says, it's a, a big city, it takes him three days to go through it, and he says this, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. <laughs> That's it. And the Ninevites believed God, verse 5. 
A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And then Jonah's warning, it reaches the king, and he rises from his throne. He takes off his royal robes. He covers himself with sackcloth, and he sits down in the dust. And then by the decree of the king, he says, Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone, who current, let, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that they will not perish. Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. This is significant, okay? Because not only did they believe God, but they believed him enough to actually do what he says. See, the, the book of James says that when we believe in God, that's not enough. Because you know who else believes that there is a God? The demons. But there's a big difference between demon faith and demonstrated faith. And here we see the Ninevites demonstrate their belief in God. Right? They cover themselves in sackcloth, which was, which was an outward sign of what we call repentance. Big churchy word that simply means to change your mind. If you were walking in one direction, which the Ninevites were, they were going about their lives going, this is what we think is best. They relent, they change their minds, they repent, and they turn around and they say, we believe God enough to actually do what he says. And their faith in that God is demonstrated through their actions. And then it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, repentance, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. See, their hearts in this moment, they have this moment of realization, of recognition that their heart is not aligned with God's purposes. And God's heart has been steadfast and consistent this entire time. Remember, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. He says, go to Nineveh. Why? Because God's heart is always for his purpose. And his purpose is always for what? Salvation. His heart is to save the people of Nineveh. And he sends Jonah. And Jonah tells them this good news that there is a God. And that he has a design for their life. And if they continue on the path that they are currently on, it's not going to end well for them. And they believe in God enough to do what he says. See, whether you're five foot oh or six foot five, right? Outwardly, very obviously broken and sinful, or maybe you look pretty good. The good news is the same good news. And the standard of perfection is the same standard that you and I both walk up to and go, uh, I can't. See, friends, and this is where, genuinely, I wish I could just pause, end chapel right here, and you and I could just walk out to the porch, and we could sit down, and we'd crack open this bougie strawberry mango sparkling water from Target, okay? And I'd grab mine, and I'd crack it open, and I'd push yours across the table and you'd sit down with me. And I genuinely wish that you and I could sit down and we could just have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. 
And we'd sit here and you'd, maybe you'd go, hey, I, I, I'm starting to grasp and understand what you're talking about, right? Like I, I understand that, that night one, we talked about this concept of sin, that there's these thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes that go against God's design for my life. And God's design for my life is actually a good thing. He's, he's, his heart is for his purpose, and his purpose is for salvation. And I understand that, that he wants life and life abundant for me. And he wants, when I, when I live his way, that it's, it's actually genuine, real freedom. And maybe in this moment, you and I would sit down and, and you'd go, what, so what do I where do I go from here? Like, what do, I, what do I do with this information? And this is where I'd open up my Bible and I'd say, hey, you, don't, you don't have to turn in yours. You could just look at mine. And I'd open up to the book of Romans. And I'd tell you that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says that there is a God, plain and simple. And it says that that God has made himself known. That if you, if you were just walking in the woods, right? If you just tomorrow morning just went on a walk and you came across a cabin you would automatically assume, ah, somebody built this. You wouldn't just think to yourself, like, whoa, that must have been a crazy storm last night that knocked over these trees in such a way that now it's this beautiful A-frame painted black. Like, that's weird storm. No, you, you would understand and know that created design, creative design, says that there's a creator. That when you see something that's created, you go, who created this? Someone made this. And that's what Romans 1 says. It says that there's a God. And that we have suppressed the truth of his way of doing life. That it can be known, but we've pushed it down. And maybe in this moment you'd go, ah, like back in Genesis chapter 3. And I'd go, yeah, that's right. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, the, the first people that ever walked this earth, they made a conscious decision to live life their way, not God's way. And the ripple effects of that, we see it thousands of years later. And that's why Romans chapter 3 says what it says, that there's no one righteous, not even one. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, there's no one right with God. Romans 3.23, a couple verses later, we would look on in my Bible, and it says that we have all sinned and we all fall short of God's glory. Remember Anna? And, and Corey standing up here and say, both of them, they, they fall short of the standard of God's glory, which is perfection. So there's a God and, and we've all sinned. We all have these thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes that, that fundamentally go against his design for life. And then it, it kind of gets worse. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of that sin, because that sin is present in my life, in your life, the wages of that sin is death. And I would ask you, man, do, do you have a job? And you'd say, yeah, I, I work at In-N-Out, I work at Chick-fil-A, or I'm a barista. And we'd sit down, and I'd say, okay, so when you work a full shift, the wages that you're due is the paycheck that you get. And you go, okay, that makes sense. Okay, because of the, the sin present in our life, Scripture says that the wages that we're due, what sin pays in is death. And it's not just a physical death. It's an eternal separation from the God that we read about in Romans chapter 1. That because he is this good, perfect, holy God. Remember Isaiah 6? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole, whole earth is filled with his glory. That this God, he, he cannot be a part of sin. So the wages, what sin pays in is death. 
And maybe you'd sit here at this point and go, well, th didn't you say good news? So, this all sounds like bad news thus far. Go, okay, this is where it gets really good. And, and we turn over to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And I would point out that it says, at just the right time. I love that it says that. At just the right time. The timing was perfect. God chooses to demonstrate his love. He says, I am love in, in 1 John chapter 4. But in, in Romans chapter 5, it says, God demonstrated his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Jesus died for us. And maybe you'd sit here and, and I'd take a, a sip of my strawberry mango sparkling water. And, and I'd tell you, maybe you'd ask the question like, well, why did, why did Jesus have to die? That seems extreme. That seems intense. Why, did, why was his love demonstrated in his death for us? When we'd go back to Romans 6 and I'd say the wages of sin is it's death. And so all sin must be paid for either by you or by Jesus. And God loved us so much that he sends Jesus and Jesus zips up flesh and he walks as a man on this earth and he lives a sinless life. He lives a life that I couldn't live and that you couldn't live. And he dies a death that I deserve so that we might have the opportunity to live a life that he deserves. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, go, that word righteousness, it just means right with God. Remember Romans 3.10, we're wrong with God. There's no one right with God, not even one. But Jesus gives us the opportunity to be right with God through him. Maybe at this point you'd go, okay, that, that makes sense. So, so what do I do with that? And I'd turn to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. And, and it says this in Romans chapter 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, Jesus didn't stay dead. See, he, Jesus, after dying, he calls his shot and says, I will resurrect three days later. And after Jesus dies, a death that you and I deserve, he raises himself from the dead to prove that he could make even dead things alive. Because friends, you and I, without Jesus, we are dead things. See, all sin must be paid for, and every single one of us will meet God face to face and ask us the question, do you know my son? Is your sin today, will it be paid for by you, or will it be paid for by my son? And Romans 10 says, if we want Jesus to pay for our sins, we must confess that he is Lord. And that word Lord in the Greek, which your New Testament is written on, it, it, it means, it says, kurios. In the word kurios, it says, it means that we have surrendered, that we have bowed a knee to him and said, your way, not my way. We've handed over the steering wheel of our life to him and God, went, God you're going to call the shots from here on out. Your word is going to be the lens through which I view the world around me and I'm going to say, I believe you enough to do what you say. See, believing that Jesus is Lord is not just about going, okay, God, I believe you. I believe that you, are, that you exist. No, it's believing him enough to actually do what he says. 
Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you put your hope in the salvation of Jesus, the call of Romans 10 is to believe and repent. I believe God that you sent Jesus, that he lived a perfect life and died a death to pay for my sins and raised again from the dead so that I might live through him. It's a belief and then it's a repentance, which looks like a change in my life. Going from here on out, you're in charge. And if you and I were sitting here and what I want to invite you into tonight, I would ask you in this moment, do you want that? Do you want to be saved through the person of Jesus? Do you recognize that your sin, your brokenness is real? It's prevalent. It exists. And that it requires a payment. And if you and I were sitting here, I, I would simply invite you to pray with me. And it's, it's not a magic prayer. Right? There's, no, there's no magic formula of words. To, if you say these words in a certain order, that that's what's going to be to say. No, friends, it's very clear in Romans chapter 10 what saves us. It's a belief and it's a repentance. Just confess with, in, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead and you will be saved. Period. The end. And then every day of every minute of every hour of every day of every week for the rest of your life looks different because of that confession. And so if you're sitting here tonight... And you want that in your life. You want Jesus to pay the penalty for your sins. And you want to surrender your life tonight to him. I just want to invite you to pray something like this with me. In this moment, would just between you and God, would you just pray this? Would you just say, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner. God, I, I recognize the brokenness in my life. That when Romans says that all have sinned, I, I get that I'm a part of that all. God, and, and thank you for your son Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross that paid for my sins. God, and thank you that Jesus didn't stay dead. God, and I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead to prove that you could make dead things alive. God, that you have the power of even over death. So tonight, I surrender my life to you. I give you my life, and from here on out, God, I live my life for you. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.